This is Matthew Tilly, and I am coming to you on Tuesday evening for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. Um, as many of you know, uh, many of you have been with me uh, through this journey. We have been studying Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's the first section of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, tonight we've, <clears throat> excuse me, we've gotten down to chapter 2 and verse 18. <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, something in my throat there. Um, but <clears throat> we will uh, continue on with that study in Mark 2, verses 18 through 22 tonight. Um, but again, I want to thank you all for those of you that uh, either join me live um, on Facebook or YouTube, and then some of you that watch later, or maybe you are listening to it on the podcast um, on Apple or Spotify or one of those. But uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm sort of alluded to it last time as I was beginning, and I'll, I'll uh, kind of close out the update for you tonight. Uh, I alluded to something that was going to be changing with my ministry, and uh, this past Sunday, uh, the folks at North Beaver Baptist Church in um, West Jefferson, North Carolina, they have uh, voted to bring me or to have me come in as their pastor. I've accepted that um, that call, and uh, as of, I guess, right now, I suppose, but uh, definitely starting uh, with our Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting uh, on tomorrow evening at 630 and then, of course, on Sunday, I'll be uh, standing in the pulpit as the pastor. So uh, that's a that's a in some ways, that's a um, kind of a culmination of a lot of things that have happened over the last two or three years. It's bringing bringing me uh, kind of where I think the Lord wants me. Uh, so in that way, it's a good thing. Um, it's also <clears throat> a really good thing just because I believe it's a call in my life to be a pastor, to be a preacher. Um, I have tried in some small ways to share some of that with you. Again, this is not church by any means. It's just a dude on a camera, but uh, it's it's a way that I've been able to, and again, hopefully it's been helpful to you, but it's a way that the, that I've been able to use, I think, what the Lord has given me as a, as a, a call to, to teach and to preach. And this is sort of a way to keep that, um, that gift sharpened. A little bit. So I'm going to continue it. I think I told you from the beginning, I'm, I don't like to start something and not finish it. That was something I was very concerned about. So I'm definitely going to finish. We're going to go all the way through chapter three. Uh, we'll reevaluate, the, see how things are. But I will just want to let y'all know, kind of give you that heads up that uh, the church will definitely get some pro get my priority. And uh, for now, I want to finish this and hopefully I can be a help to you in that. But we'll have to reevaluate when we get done. Are we going to continue this or do something different? But uh, we're in the middle of it, so we're going to finish it. We're in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And uh, we'll just go ahead and get right into it. As I often do, or always do rather, is I like to pray and ask the Lord to help me. I am dealing with his word, so I want to make sure that he is using, uh, using me and I'm available to him. And then, of course, you're listening to that. So I want to make sure that his Holy Spirit is is uh, speaking to you through what I try to teach you. So let, let's pray together. Hope you'll you'll join me in this prayer. Lord, I, I'm presuming to teach your word, which is kind of a big deal. And um, I don't want to do, do it wrong. I want to do it in a way that's helpful to people, glorifying to you, uh, that points people to Jesus. And I pray that you'll be in the middle of this, making my words plain, helping those that are trying to learn of you, help them to get closer to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, something happened to me several years ago. It's been a while now, uh, a couple of decades now, actually, um, that really made a big difference in my life. Um, I fell in love with a woman uh, 
Her name is Vanessa. Uh, and I was a 17 year old kid. Um, as you can tell by looking at me, that wasn't that long ago. No, it was, it's been a while. Um, but because I fell in love with her when I was 17, um, <clears throat> my life is completely, it's, it's turned out completely different than, than, than it would have. Nobody knows exactly what could have and would have been. I mean, we, we can guess and we can, we can think we might know, but we, no one really knows exactly, uh, exactly what, what would have happened if this or that had not happened. But um, I can tell you that because I fell in love with her, and of course, she reciprocated and loved me back, and we ultimately got married, and we have been married for a while now. Um, there's a couple things that are different in my life because of that. Uh, for one, I have a real woman in my life. There was a point at that, that time, if you knew me back then, um, <clears throat> there, if you knew me back then, that a little touch and go, you know, it's like, is Matthew actually going to get a girlfriend? Is Matthew ever going to get married? You know, there was a, always that little bit of a concern. I think at least I had it in my mind. I don't know if anybody else did. Um, I also, when I was in college, um, if I had not been dating and seriously dating and ultimately marrying uh, Vanessa, I can tell you, I might have definitely had a strong influence in college to push me towards Presbyter the Presbyterian church. I'm, I'm a Baptist, a pretty dyed-in-the-wool Baptist, as it, as it were. But um, I was pushing in that direction. But because of some of the influences of Vanessa, that's not happening. Um, I had a very serious conversation in my later years of college, later about year of college, uh, about going into the Marine Corps. Uh, I was talking to a recruiter, and I was ready to do the thing. But because of my relationship with Vanessa, right, wrong, and different, you can argue with it, you can like it, you can hate it, whatever. But I, I didn't do that. I stayed, uh, you know, stayed in the civilian life and uh, and married Vanessa ultimately. So, in addition to <clears throat> what has been, excuse my my throat there, folks. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but in addition to what has been 26 years of a really good marriage, 20 over 26 years now. Um, she has made a real noticeable lasting impact in my life. And it's not the kind of impact. I mean, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of you that are listening, but you know, for better or for worse, you're not making that kind of impact in my life because we're, we're, we're friends, we're acquaintances, but at the end of the day, you're not making those. She has a very different impact on my life, a kind that an acquaintance or a classmate wouldn't have. I'm bringing that up as that influence and that dramatic influence up because that's exactly the kind of influence that Jesus had on the lepers and the paralyzed folks, the demon-possessed people, the politicians, and in all the, the religious leaders, and of course the sinners and publicans um, that Jesus encountered here in the first uh, two chapters so far of Mark. They started to understand some of this about Jesus, that you can't get around him and not be changed, not be transformed by him. But there were a group of people, I mentioned the religious people, and there were some, I think, that started getting it. Nicodemus, you read about in John. There are a few that started getting this, but the larger group, the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and even some of the followers of John, you'll see in this passage, some of them didn't quite get this. They didn't quite figure this out. So Jesus takes some time in this passage we're about to look at, and he gives three illustrations, three very unusual to me, at least unusual illustrations to help explain for religious people like me, and maybe like you too, what exactly Jesus does for somebody. 
And he gives these three illustrations. I think it's really interesting to, to, to take a look at what he says here. So I'm going to pick up in Mark chapter 2. I'm looking in verse 18. And it says, the, fir the first thing that happens is you've got the disciples of John and the Pharisees. And it says, and the disciples of John and Pharisees used to fast. So it was a normal thing for them to, to fast on a regular basis. He says, and they come to Jesus, and they come and say to him, say to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Now, this first illustration here, it starts by somebody asking you what is, I think, a fair question. Why don't you, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast on a regular basis? This would have been normal behavior, as they point out, not only for the Pharisees, but for the disciples of John. I mean, normal behavior. In fact, a lot of the Pharisees would do this as many as, as often as twice a week. So this might have been a, this would have been a, not just a regular occurrence in their lives, but on a, re a weekly basis, they were going and doing this fasting. They were doing this multiple times a week, um, often throughout the year. However, the law, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 to 34, so Leviticus 16, read that section there, that's where the law really requires the Jewish people to fast. And the requirement is once a year on what they would call the Day of Atonement. Um, you might have heard it, Yom Kippur is how it's referred to today in, in the Jewish community. Um, but there was a very specific time, usually ends up being on our calendar in the fall time, uh, but very specific time of the year where they would fast and the purpose of that was to show repentance as a nation to God for their sins. That was the whole purpose to kind of get them back to, to, to seek the power and the presence of God to, to confess their sins, repent of those things. But over time, what was happening, even though it was one fast a year that was required, there were more fasts added. Now, let me make this a little side note. If you are participating in practicing uh, the spiritual discipline of fasting, first of all, it's a wonderful practice. I don't like to do it. It's not a bad thing. It's just because of my own flesh, because I'm a big old fat boy and like to eat. But um, but the reality is it's a very good practice. So if you as often as you're able to do it and as much as you're willing to do that, there's nothing wrong with it. But these people were adding more fasts throughout the year. Sometimes they would do it for themselves. Sometimes they would do it for others in the nation and all that sort of thing. But they are asking Jesus, hey, listen, why won't you fast? So he gives an illustration. This is the first illustration. And he says in verse 19, rather in verse, yeah, verse 19, which is his answer, why don't you fast? Well, here's what his answer is. Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Just explain it in a simple terms. When you're going to go to a wedding, are you going to have a fast? I mean, even in our culture today, when you go to a wedding, I mean, at the very least, you're going to eat a piece of cake. Uh, you, you might you might have some drinks. You might eat some peanuts. You might have a full meal, depending on the depending on who's putting it on you. I remember one wedding I went to, and there was a whole pig picking at this wedding. Uh, pretty good eating that day. But the point is that when you go to a wedding, it's it's a time of celebration because the people that you want are there. There's not there's no sorrow at a wedding. At least it shouldn't be. If there's sorrow, there's a problem. You want to start out on a good note. Um, but the point is that they have what they, they, they long for is there, the family, the, the bride and the groom, and all of those people are there together. So why would you fast? He's essentially saying in, the, in that verse, in that, um, in verse 19, listen, when you, got, when, you got, when you got what you need, you don't fast. Go to verse 20. He says, but the days will come 
when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. When there's a reason to have sorrow, when there's a reason to try to get back what you've lost, that's when fasting happens. In other words, you think about why do you have fasting to begin with? Well, you have fasting because you're trying to, you're showing repentance, you're trying to get forgiveness. But then what happens, you, you want that presence of God. And when you're forgiven and you get that, you get that repentance and you're forgiven, the presence of God is restored. So why would you fast? And, and the whole point of this is to ask the question, would you even know if God's presence was with you? Or are you just fasting because it's another religious ritual that has no reality at all? Because when Jesus shows up, it's God himself with you. And that changes everything. Just to try to make it apply to us, why do you go to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you want revival, whether it's in your community or in your, uh, in your church or even in your own life? Why would you want those things? Is it because you want your traditions and your political views or your way of life to continue or to even to dominate? Is that what you really want? Or is it because you actually want genuine life-changing experience with Jesus himself? I would argue that most of you would say, oh, I want an experience with Jesus, and I do too. But if that's what we want, then these religious rituals are not the point. They are merely means to an end. The end being not the ritual, not the religious practice, not the behavior. The end being the presence of Christ with us. He changes so that we don't have to fast at the wedding. We have him. We have him. And yes, we where we feel, and, and this is something I've talked about in some sermons and, and glad to talk to you more about, but if you really are feeling like you do not have the presence of God in your life, and, and as a Christian even, you can feel that way, then sure, you're going to want to pursue that with the hunger and thirst of righteousness. You want that. That's the right thing. But the thing is, it's not about, oh, I have read my Bible through however many times, or I go to church so many times a week, and all these other religious practices, those are great, but why are you doing it? I hope the reason is because you experience the Lord when you go into the pages of his word, not because you can check mark on your wall that you've read these pages or these verses. Jesus changes everything in that the religious practices are not about, about themselves. They're ultimately pointing us to him. The second illustration he gives is a patch. You see this in verse 21, a patch for clothing. In verse 21, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, no man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Else the new piece that filled it up taketh away the old garment and the rent is made worse. He's essentially saying, if you've got a ratty old garment and you put it on a and put a new patch on there because you're not going to get an old ratty patch, but you're going to put a new piece of clothing on there. It's already tore up. It's already messed up. What's going to end up happening is you're going to mess up the patch. So he's saying old garments, basically, they don't need patches. They just need to be tossed. I mean, sometimes you'll do this. You may have a maybe an old pair of, of jeans or something that, you know, you're kind of comfortable in. So you might wear them to work out in the yard or kind of knock around the house or work in the garage or something like that. But but once once they kind of get to past the point of no return, you don't patch them anymore. You just toss them, get a new pair. That's that's the point. And what Jesus is trying to get across to us, I believe in this, is that 
he's not a patch. He's got a, he's not trying to fix something that's wrong with us. He is really changing regimes. He's changing everything. See, what the religious leaders of that day wanted was a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah, one who would come, the anointed one that the Old Testament would promise. But they had in their mind, they want a Messiah who can keep them in power. That kind of gives them what they want, but maybe better. That's kind of their idea. But Jesus was not coming to patch up what they had. He was coming in to be the Messiah, to overthrow sin, death, and hell. He was coming in to toss out the old regime and become a new. And in fact, if you'll go back to remember the previous lessons that we've gone through in the first part of chapter one, where he's coming up and saying, listen, I'm the king. I'm here. The gospel, the new king is on on the throne. He is on the scene. You get in line behind me or you're my enemy. That's what he's saying. Listen, I'm not I'm not coming to, to bolster your regime. I'm coming in to overthrow it. I'm not a patch on old clothing. I'm something completely new. And I think we've got to think about Jesus in the same way, that he's not a patch on our problems. As Americans, I think a lot of times we think in terms of, you know, we've got the American dream. And, and don't get me wrong, it's a wonderful thing. I'm glad to be an American. God bless the USA. But we can start elevating that to some kind of some sort of sacred position. And what Jesus then becomes is a way to make the American dream more American and more dreamy, to kind of be the uh, the cherry on top of our ice cream sundae. But Jesus is not is not a replacement or rather he's not a patch. He is a full replacement. He's what you really want. He's really what you need. He takes the selfishness, the, the consumerism, the lusts that we have, and doesn't satisfy them by giving us what we want. Instead, he gives us new priorities, new passions, new purposes. He is, to use the analogy that he's using there with this old garment and the new garment and that sort of thing, he is a whole new set of clothes, and we need to get into his set of clothes to kind of put him on the way that's the language that that Paul uses I believe over in um, Galatians uh, I believe I'm sorry in Ephesians chapter 4 where he talks about putting off the old and putting on the new we need to put on this whole new set of clothing which is of course Jesus Christ he's not a patch he's a whole new whole new answer completely new answer to the problem the last illustration he gives is in verse 22, and he says that no man putteth new wine into old bottles. And he's using kind of this recycling old bottles um, analogy. Now, uh, the one thing he, that you got to understand about the bottles that they would have used versus the bottles we might use today, the bottles we use today obviously are glass and things like that, metal. Um, but the, 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 the bottles that they were using were made of leather, particularly the wine skins, the ones they would use the bottles, if you will, that they would use for wines. Um, and so he says, you know, you don't take an old wine bottle and you don't put, uh, <clears throat> no man put a new wine into an old, old bottle. So he says, you don't, you don't take that and put the old wine in the new bottle. <clears throat> now, the reason for that is, again, remember, think that these wine skins are, are, um, are leather. So what ends up happening with wine, especially if it ferments, it's going to start expanding. And when it expands, that leather is expanding and it's stretching, which is the nice thing about having a leather uh, encasement is that it will expand with that, with that liquid. 
The problem is that once it's expanding, if you know how leather works, it's not snapping back. It's not going to do that. It's going to kind of stay stretched out. So then if you now take new wine, meaning it's not fully fermented yet, and put it into that stretched out bag or wine bottle, if you will, what's going to happen is <laughs> it's not stretching anymore. It's not snapping back. And so you refill it and you fill it up. It's just going to stretch out further. And at some point it's going to burst. So he's saying, listen, you, nobody does that. He says, else the new wine doth burst the bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred. But the new wine must be put into new bottles. He's saying, I'm not about what, what he's essentially saying here is I'm not about recycling, taking something that's old, just kind of washing it out, cleaning it up and using it again. That's not what Jesus is in the business of. Don't get me wrong. He, I think he, he's not about polluting the earth and all that. So don't, don't hear that about what I'm saying. But I am saying, and I believe he's saying, he's not about recycling people, kind of taking them and kind of dusting them off and cleaning them up. He is in the regeneration business. He makes, as, he, as Paul writes over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 17, verse 17, that he makes new creatures in Christ. He literally reforms takes us from the ground up and remakes us. Uh, the way Titus puts it in Titus 3, 5, he talks about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It's literally regenerating us so that once we are new creatures with new generation, we have been made new. We now have new power. Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission, verses 18 through 20, uh, Jesus talks about how that we have all the power that he has. Why? Because it's in this earthen vessel. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 4, I believe it is. He talks about that we have in this earthen vessel, we have the, 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 the glories of Christ. That's been put into these new people, these new creatures, these regenerated people. So what all that means is what he doesn't do, what Jesus doesn't do is, for example, with our marriages, he doesn't just sort of, ah, everything I don't like about her, he's just going to fix that for me. Or everything I don't like about him, he's going to fix that. No, no, what he does is he actually gives, makes us new so that we, as the husband or the wife, depending on who I'm talking to, he says he makes you new as a Christian so that you can come into this broken, failed, flawed marriage and you are a new creature in Christ and you approach it in a new way. If you have addictions or lusts, sort of proclivities, that things that draw you to them, it's not that he's going to say, well, that's not going to be a problem for you anymore. Say you were an alcoholic before you got saved, or maybe you had a pornography addiction or you know, any, any number of overeating, any of those things. He's not going to say, well, those are no longer problems for you. No, instead, what he says is to make you a new creature, give you new priorities, new desires so that you can focus on those things. You can feed the new man and let the old man die. Those, those struggles and those strains in life, it's not that those are solved for us. He doesn't just take us and make us stronger and better. No, no. He strips us down, makes us new, and gives us the new power, the new life, the new purpose. We're regenerated. So he's not recycling old bottles. What he's doing is he's just busting up the old ones and making brand new ones. That's what he's doing. The conclusion of this matter, and I believe this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us as he's telling us these, or rather giving us these three illustrations, the uh, fasting at a wedding or um, uh, patching up old clothes 
or recycling old bottles. He's using these illustrations to say, listen, I, Jesus, am changing everything. And, and I want to just kind of level with you. <clears throat> Sometimes we don't feel, I don't feel like I'm experiencing that. I teach that and preach that all the time that Jesus changes everything. But I'll tell you, sometimes you don't feel like everything's changed. And I want to just level with you that if you are in that position where you don't feel like I'm experiencing the, I know I'm saved. Jesus is my savior. I love the Lord. All those things. You could say all that and affirm all that, but you just feel like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm experiencing new life and new, a new creation. I feel bogged down by the old. Uh, It might be time to fast. It might be time to get rid of the things. I I think fasting in the Bible is primarily about depriving yourself of food, and and that might be appropriate in your situation. But I think in the the bigger scheme, as it applies here, it might be getting rid of those things that are filling your mind and your body and your heart and get rid of those so that you are hungering for Jesus. And that's really the point of the fasting. So maybe it is time to fast. Hey, I'm not feeling his presence. I'm not feeling changed by him. So I'm going to fast so I can enjoy his presence. I would encourage you as a practical matter, that might be something you need to do. And again, it might need to be adjusted or applied to your specific circumstances, but ultimately that might be something you need to do. It might be time to throw out your way of doing things. I think some of us can get a little stubborn. Don't you think? At least I know I can be. I've got my way of doing it and my way because I thought of it, it must be the best way. Well, it might be time to throw out your way of doing things and not try to reform or revise your way, edit it a little bit so that it's a little bit better, a little bit, little bit cleaner, a little more moral, a little more biblical, but instead just toss it wholesale out the door and say, Jesus, would you give me your way and let me do it your way? And then just obey what he says. It might be time to let him change you and fill you. I, I, I don't know who all is watching right now. I'll go back and try to see some of you that were watching the comments you've made. Thank you for those. But I don't know who's watching or who might listen to this later. There may be some of you who are trying to live the Jesus life by being better, trying to clean up your act a little bit, maybe even going to church, reading your Bible, those kinds of things. But you've never actually come to Jesus and said, listen, Jesus, I'm not worthy. I don't, I don't know why you want me, but whatever you want to do to me, it, I'm yours. And completely surrender yourself and your sin to Jesus. You might have heard people call that getting saved or, or confessing faith in Jesus. A lot of different terms people put around that. But ultimately, what we're talking about there is actually following Jesus, seeing him as the only hope of salvation and saying, listen, Jesus, I can't fix me. Can you don't fix me? Give me get rid of get rid of old Matthew, who your name, and give me a brand new person. Make me a new creature in you. And I think it's time for some of us to just let him change us from the ground up and fill us the way he wants to. Make us completely new so that we can be what we ought to be for Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus does change everything. And if we're not experiencing that change, I would just tell you in a word, in a sentence or a phrase, get a little closer to him. Because if you're with him, you're going to experience change. I'll tell you that from my own experience. Even as a Christian, when I have gotten away from him, that's when I felt, man, I just don't feel the change. But the minute that I actually get in his presence, 
spend some time saying, listen, I'm going to give up my way. I'm going to follow you. That's when change starts happening. That's when transformative change, because I'm telling you, you can't get close to Jesus and not be changed. You go ask those lepers. You go ask that, that man who had a demon in the synagogue. You go ask these people from Mark chapter one and two, and you ask them, when you got close to Jesus, what happened? It changed everything. And I believe the same thing will happen for us. I want to go ahead and close out there. So coming close to the 30 minute mark. So I'm going to go ahead and close out our time together. I'll just encourage you I would, that, to try to join with, join with me next week. Uh, I'll try to get this scheduled for seven o'clock on um, next Tuesday. And at that time, we'll be looking at Mark chapter two, verse 23. We'll just pick up where we're right where we left off. Go to, I think it goes to the end of the chapter. The other, this next section goes to the end of the chapter. And um, I'm just going to tell you what the headline is. Jesus doesn't need your help. That's what that's about. He doesn't need our help. Jesus is Jesus all by himself. And you'll, you'll see that. And hopefully you'll look ahead, read ahead a little bit and study that. If you've got any questions, you've got any, uh, any commentary, drop it in the comments. Those of you that are watching live, um, or if you just want to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from you. But again, y'all, y'all are uh, uh, so good to me to, to spend some time with me. And uh, y'all have a great week. We'll talk to y'all later. Bye now.